12.30 on my clock, so we'll get started. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm not joined by anyone. It's just me, myself, and I. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you missed a presentation, you can listen to a recording at three different locations, our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at podbean.com under Surety Today, and on our microsite, suretytoday.net, all one word. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. If you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. And if you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. She'll get you squared away. We've muted the line, of course, during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. So today we're going to talk about the surety's reservation of rights. We all do it. Some folks use a really long and detailed reservation of rights paragraph, some just uh, a sentence, others somewhere in between. But why do we do it? Does it work? What should be included? What should we not do? This is the subject of today's presentation. But first, I've prepared a little lead-in since we're on the subject of reservations. So hopefully this will translate across the phone. And he's, he's right. Sometimes the problem is holding on to that reservation once you've made it. So anyway, we, we all do it. It's practically instinctive. We don't even give it so much as a second thought. Even if all we're doing is something mundane or routine like transmitting a document, we still do it. We reserve our rights. No doubt you've written letter after letter, which ends with some variation of the following. The surety reserves any and all rights, remedies, and defenses under the bonds, other applicable documents, at law and or in equity, as pertain to this matter. 
nothing stated herein or left unsaid shall constitute an admission of liability, estoppel, prejudice, or waiver of any kind, including but not limited to a waiver of the statute of limitations. Sometimes the reservation of rights are fairly detailed, like the statement I just read. Other times they're short and pithy, such as the surety fully reserves all of its rights. Still other times the reservation of rights can be fairly lengthy, bordering on the overkill. So the question arises, is the practice of reserving one's rights a leftover vestige from some formalistic bygone era when demurs and writs roamed the land, or does it serve a legitimate risk management function in today's world of claims handling? In this presentation, we will explore the surety's reservation of rights and perhaps put a new perspective on that reflexive action that we all take for granted. Reserving, one rights, uh, reserving one's rights uh, or interests is a longstanding practice that has been employed in a variety of contexts. Perhaps the most familiar context is that of liability insurance coverage, where reservation of rights is most often discussed in the circumstance of an insurer providing a defense of an insured, while at the same time preserving any rights or defenses the insurer may have regarding denial of coverage or liability for indemnity. Regardless of the, con of the context, the concept remains the same. The purpose of the reservation of rights is to advise the party with whom you are dealing that some part of the rights and obligations between the parties is being separated out, protected, or reserved. The concept of reserving one's rights arises in part in response to the doctrines of waiver and estoppel. Essentially, the reservation serves the function of putting the recipient on notice that the surety is not intending its acts or omissions to constitute a waiver of rights or an estoppel. By providing the notice to the recipient, whether it be an obligee, a claimant, or an indemnitor, the recipient is advised that the surety may yet assert its rights, notwithstanding the action it is currently taking, or notwithstanding the fact that the surety has not specifically addressed an issue. Thus, the reservation of rights is designed to simultaneously preclude any notice of reasonable reliance, preclude any notion of, of reasonable reliance by the recipient and to plainly con contradict any claim they may make of intentional waiver by the surety. Accordingly, as a starting point to understanding the function and purpose of the reservation of rights, one must first understand the doctrines of waiver and estoppel. So let's take a look at, at estoppel. Estoppel arises from the maxim that no person may take advantage of their own wrong. At its core, estoppel looks to the effect of the conduct of one party on the position of the other party. Thus, a party asserting the benefit of an estoppel must be misled to their detriment and have changed their position for the worse, having believed and relied on the representation of the party sought to be estopped. Estoppel may arise even when there is no intent to mislead if the actions of one party cause a prejudicial change in the conduct of the other. So it's generally recognized that estoppel is comprised of three basic elements, voluntary conduct or representation, reliance, and detriment. Estoppel can arise in a variety of circumstances in the surety context, but, but by far the most frequently occurring situation involves the statute of limitations. Claimants have frequently argued that the surety has taken some action or failed to take some action, which has allegedly lulled the claimant into inactivity until the statute of limitations has expired. So let's take an example of, of estoppel and look at a case that, uh, that came out some time ago uh, out of the Fourth Circuit. The case was 
U.S. for the for the benefit of Humble Oil and Refining Company versus the Fidelity and Casualty Company of New York. In that case, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit held that the surety was a stop from asserting the statute of limitations as a defense to a payment bond claim. The case involved a supplier who provided asphalt and petroleum products under a subcontract on a highway construction project. The principal failed to pay the supplier, of course, and the supplier asserted a claim against the payment bond. The surety advised the supplier that it was investigating the claim. After reviewing the principal's financial situation and in an attempt to get several unfinished projects completed, the surety reached an arrangement with the principal and its indemnitors whereby the surety agreed to pay all outstanding bills that were covered by the bond and which were properly proven, including the claim of the supplier, Humble Oil, and, in, and, in, and to fund the principal's payroll and pay $1,200 a month to one of its indemnitors to continue running the principal in order to complete those unfinished projects. So the principal conveyed the substance of its arrangement with the surety to the subcontractors and suppliers, including Humble Oil. The supplier, uh, Humble in this case, prepared the necessary invoices and advised the surety that it would withhold action against the principal for a reasonable time to permit the surety to respond. The surety requested that the supplier complete certain forms to substantiate its claim, which the supplier did. Subsequently, the surety advised the supplier that its claim was denied because the statute of limitations had expired in the interim. In reaching its decision, the Humble Oil Court found that at the time the promise to pay Humble Oil's claim was communicated by the principal, the surety had assumed control of the principal's business and had employed one of the indemnitors to complete the remaining work to stave off creditors. Accordingly, the court held that the principal was an agent of the surety. The court found that there was an acknowledgement by the surety of its liability as a supplier, an explicit promise by the surety to pay that the, to pay uh, the supplier. A procedure was set up for the surety um, to verify subcontractor suppliers' claims, and and the subs and suppliers participated in that process. There was an explicit promise uh, by the supplier to forbear from bringing suit based on the representations it had it had received. Thus, the court found there was a representation, reliance, change of position, and detriment. Accordingly, the surety was a stop from asserting the statute of limitations as a defense to the claim. In general, let's take a look at waiver now next. In general, waiver is typically defined as the intentional relinquishment of a known right or such conduct as warrants an inference of the relinquishment of such right. Waiver may result from an express agreement or be inferred from circumstances. When waiver is implied from the conduct, the acts, or circumstances relied upon to show the waiver must make out a clear case. Accordingly, whether waiver exists in a given case is a question for the trier of fact and turns on the intent of the party ostensibly waiving the right. It is significant to note that waiver may occur by acts and conduct of the surety or its agent. For a waiver to occur, though, the acts or conduct must occur after the surety or its agent have full knowledge of the facts giving rise to the right or defense being waived. So in reviewing and distilling the case law regarding reservation of rights, both in the context of suretyship and insurance policies generally, there are several overarching common sense principles that can be observed. First, to be effective, the reservation of rights must be adequately communicated to the intended recipient. 
Second, the reservation must clearly and unambiguously inform the recipient of the surety's position. In this regard, the adequacy of the reservation is determined not by the recipient's subjective intent, but by whether the reservation fairly informs the recipient of the rights being preserved. Finally, the reservation must be asserted in a timely fashion. In addition to the foregoing principles, courts also look to other factors in determining whether a party's rights have been properly reserved. Specifically, courts tend to place a great deal of weight on whether any other subsequent actions have been undertaken that are inconsistent with the reservation of rights. Further, courts also consider whether any representations or promises have been made to the recipient that are inconsistent with the reservation of rights. Finally, courts will look to whether the underlying claim has remained disputed throughout. So let's take a look at some cases involving the use of the reservation of rights going you know, both ways, uh, upholding it and, and not upholding it. First case is J. Chiezo Plumbing and Heating versus USF&G, and this is um, out of the Southern District of New York. The claimant asserted that the surety should be stopped from arguing that the statute of limitations had run because the surety acknowledged the claimant's claim and, presented and represented that they were investigating the claim but then waited for the statute of limitations to expire before actually denying the claim. The court noted that a claimant can prove estoppel by showing that the surety initiated settlement negotiations in order to lull the claimant into inactivity until the statute of limitations expires. In addressing the estoppel argument raised by the claimant in the, in the Chiesa case, the court observed that New York courts have consistently rejected estoppel claims against the surety when the surety acknowledged receipt of the claim, reserved its rights on numerous occasions, the amount of the claim was always in dispute, and no settlement was ever offered by the surety. The Chiesa court noted that USF&G never waived its rights under the bond because each letter it sent to the claimant explicitly reserved those rights. Further, USF&G advised the claimant that it was in the process of determining its position with regard to the claim but never offered a settlement or otherwise claimed to be in the process of resolving the claim. As a result, the court held there could be no estoppel or waiver. Next case is Hutton Construction Company, Inc. versus County of Rockland. Again, that's a Southern District of New York case, and this presents a somewhat unusual circumstance. In Hutton, the principal encountered subsurface rock and water conditions on a project which were materially different than what was disclosed by the owner in the contract document. Accordingly, the principal filed suit to obtain payment from the owner for the additional cost caused by the change conditions. The owner asserted that the principal failed to timely perform and terminated the principal and made claim against the three surety companies. In response to the claim against the bond, the sureties chose to litigate the issue of the termination of the principal. The litigation dragged on for over five years. The principal could not afford to fund the litigation, so the sureties incurred $1.3 million in legal fees, expert fees, and payment of some payment bond claims. I've been practicing for 26 years, and I've yet to have that $1.3 million <laughs> legal fee case. So if anybody has one of those, you know, send them right over. Along the way, there were several attempts at settlement to no avail. Also along the way, the sureties made two demands for collateral and indemnity from the principal and its indemnitors, but, of course, no collateral was provided and no payments were made. Finally, after a jury was impaneled, right there on the steps of the courthouse, literally, a settlement was reached between the sureties, the owner, and the owner's design engineers. 
The surety settled the claims on behalf of the principal and indemnitors under the GIA without their consent or approval. Subsequently, the sureties filed a motion to enforce the settlement. The principal opposed the motion, challenging the surety's right to settle and asserting that the sureties had waived any such rights or were stopped from asserting such rights. The principal contended that the surety's support for the litigation over five years constituted a waiver of any right to settle the claims. The court rejected this argument and noted that the sureties continuously reserved their rights under the GIA in four separate letters over the five-year period of the litigation and concluded that in light of the reservation of rights, there can be no issue of fact as to whether the sureties intentionally relinquished their rights. The court also pointed to the reservation of rights in denying the claim of estoppel, noting that the principal could not have reasonably relied on the sureties' actions in funding the litigation because the sureties continuously reserved their rights under the GIA. So the Hutton case stands as a reminder to repeatedly assert and reassert your reservation of rights in order to preserve your rights, particularly when the matter drags on for a long period of time. It's like Seinfeld says, anybody can make the reservation, but you've got to hold that reservation. That's what matters. So in contrast to Chiesa and Hutton, there are several courts uh, have found estoppel and or waiver to exist even when the surety asserted a reservation of rights. So let's look at in the United States for the benefit of Nelson versus Reliance Insurance Company. The United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit held in that case that the surety was estopped from asserting the statute of limitations as a defense. In Nelson, the claimant, Nelson Brothers, a subcontractor on a federal project, attempted to obtain payment from the principal for work and materials provided to the project. After receiving no response from the principal, Nelson Brothers contracted the local or contacted the local agent for the surety regarding the claim. In a telephone call, the agent purportedly said, you don't need to worry about the bonding company not making payment if the principal doesn't, and that the surety would even pay the interest if the principal didn't pay it. Following the telephone call, the attorney for Nelson Brothers sent a letter directly to the home office of the surety advising that the claimant was looking to the surety for payment and that it would hold off filing suit until a certain date to enable the surety sufficient time to investigate the matter. The surety responded to the claim requesting information and asserted a reservation of rights. Subsequently, the surety was advised by the principal that it did not dispute the claim and that it did not have sufficient funds to, put, to pay the claim. The principal expressly asked for funds to pay Nelson Brothers, but the surety refused. After learning about the financial status of the principal, the local agent wrote a letter to the Nelson Brothers attorney for the purpose of getting them to hold off filing any litigation. The letter from the agent requested Nelson Brothers indulgence while the matter was referred to the home office for consideration. You've got to love these agents. The agent assured Nelson Brothers that the bond claims department would investigate and that they would take immediate action. Some five months later, Nelson Brothers' attorney inquired as to the status of the matter and stated that Nelson Brothers would file suit if the surety did not respond in 10 days. The local agent responded to the letter and advised that negotiations between the owner and the principal were on the verge of completion and that once the settlement had been reached with the owner, direct settlement would be negotiated with the creditors. The agent's purpose in responding was to nullify the 10-day deadline. Three months later, Nelson Brothers' attorney again inquired as to the status of the threatened litigation and threatened litigation again. The principal responded to Nelson Brothers' inquiry at the behest of the surety and advised that as soon as the funds were made available from the owner, the account would be settled. There were no further communications and the statute of limitations on the claim expired. 
Um, Nelson, the Nelson court concluded that in sum, Nelson Brothers contracted the surety, or contacted the surety on four occasions, manifesting the clear intent to file suit if the claim was not settled forthwith. On every occasion, their requests and demands were met with answers which assured them that amicable settlement was just around the corner. When the foregoing representations are viewed in the light of what the surety knew and intended, it is clear that their conduct and representations were calculated to convey the impression that Nelson's brothers should defer action pending the settlement negotiations between the prime contractor and the government and that the surety would pay Nelson brothers' claim if the principal did not. The Nelson court held that the surety did, in fact, lull Nelson Brothers into believing that the claim would amicably, be amicably settled within a reasonable time. The Nelson case brings into focus the fact that a reservation of rights is not an impenetrable shield or license to do as one pleases. Actions and conduct after the reservation of rights can still lead to such significant prejudice that the court will be more inclined to find a stopple. The next case we're going to look at is uh, USF&G versus Brass Petro Oil Services Company. The surety companies argued that they were not liable under the performance bonds because, among other things, the obligees failed to satisfy certain conditions precedent to asserting claims against the bonds. In Brass Petro, the principals on the performance bonds informed the obligees that they were experiencing financial difficulties and that if contract funds and other monies were not advanced to them, they would not be able to complete the projects. The obligees agreed to a number of financial assistance measures, including making direct payments to suppliers, modifying the contract terms, etc. The sureties were eventually informed of these measures, but did not object or demand that such measures cease. The Brass Petro Court found that, quote, the record discloses that the sureties, while attempting to effect a reservation of rights in certain communications with the obligees, simply stood by, took no action, and offered no opinion, while the obligees amended the contracts and implemented the system of direct and advanced payments. The Second Circuit has noted that it is well settled that the law does not favor the indifferent, unseen surety who fails to help himself. And as we have stated, the policy behind surety bonds is not to protect the surety from its own laziness or poorly considered decision, unquote. The court concluded that the sureties, in not objecting to the direct and advance payments, waived any objections to the direct and advance payments of which they had been informed. Clearly, in spite of a reservation of rights in the case, there can come a point at which critical, a critical mass of facts and or actions are reached which overrides the attempt to reserve one's rights. Again, the reservation of rights is not a license to ignore one's obligations to act reasonably. Another case, um, All Gulf Contractors, Inc. versus Jimenez, a subcontractor on a federal project, performed additional and extra work on the project and submitted a claim against the payment bond for recovery of the costs associated with that work. The surety responded to the claim by requesting further information and stating in part that the surety was reserving all rights and defenses, whether by statute, at law, or in equity. The subcontractor provided the additional information requested by the surety. There was no further communications until after the statute of limitations had expired when the surety sent another letter to the subcontractor requesting additional information. The surety did not refer to the fact that the statute of limitations had run on the claim in the interim. The subcontractor responded, reasserting its claim and requesting immediate payment to keep legal matters from escalating. The surety responded, indicating that any amounts due for extra work would be determined 
in accordance with the procedures described in the dispute resolution provisions of the general contract and that the claim presented, presented was premature and could not be honored at the time. The subcontractor then filed suit against the surety. The surety responded to the suit with a motion for summary judgment asserting that the statute of limitations barred the claim. The subcontractor argued, among other things, that the surety had waived its right to assert the statute of limitations because the surety continued to deal with the claim after limitations had expired and the surety asserted a belief that the claim was premature pending the resolution of the request for equitable adjustment. The subcontractor contended that such conduct demonstrated the surety's intent to waive the statute of limitations regarding the contractor's office, pending the contractor officer's decision. The Jimenez court denied the surety's motion for summary judgment, concluding that the surety's conduct after it reserved its rights created a genuine issue of fact as to whether the surety impliedly waived the statute of limitations. So there you see again that, you know, that dealing with a claim after limitations can be an issue and there's other courts that have, that have uh, reached that same conclusion. So a final case we'll look at is uh, Casey Industrials versus Seaboard Surety. And this is a case uh, out of the Eastern District of Virginia. In that case, the surety issued an A312 payment bond to the owner of the project in connection with the construction of a, um, a power station in Virginia by the principal. The claimant, Casey Industrial, entered into a subcontract with the principal to perform concrete construction services and underground electrical work. Eventually, the principal was default terminated by the owner, and through a takeover agreement, uh, the surety hired a completion contractor, and Casey continued working for the completion contractor. Casey provided a notice of claim against the A312 payment bond. Seaboard responded to the claim, rejecting it, and in response identified certain defenses upon which it relied. In addition, Seaboard also asserted a reservation of rights in its response letter, stating that the surety continues to reserve all rights and defenses that it or its principal may have had at law, equity, or under the bond. This reservation includes without limitation all defenses that may be available under any applicable notice or suit limitation provision, as well as all other defenses that may be identified or which may be developed during Seaboard's further review of the claim. KC subsequently filed suit and moved for partial summary judgment, relying on the Bramble case, and argued that any defenses not asserted as a basis for denying the claim within the 45-day period were waived. The KC court held that five-day period. Similar reservation of rights were asserted by the sureties in the Wadsworth and Bramble cases as well, and those reservations were similarly brushed aside. So the Casey, Wadsworth, and Brandle, Bramble cases point out the limit of the ability of a surety to rely on a reservation or change contractual or statutory requirements in the bond or applicable statute. So in the Casey line of cases, the bond language required a response from the surety within 45 days. The surety in a claim response letter cannot modify the bond language by simply inserting a reservation of rights paragraph. Rather, the surety is contractually bound to the language of the bond. Similarly, if a claims handling statute, rule, or regulation required the surety to take action within a, cer a certain period of time or provide certain information, the surety would not be able to change those requirements with a unilateral reservation of rights. So as we see, 
from the foregoing, as we've talked about, far from being a remnant from a bygone era, the reservation of rights can play a vital role in the claims handling process. Indeed, the surety should renew and reevaluate its approach to the use of the reservation of rights as a risk management tool. The widespread practice of using prepackaged form language, whether it's applicable to the context or not, should be reviewed with a concerted effort to include a specifically tailored reservation of rights in all communications with the obligees, claimants, or indemnitors. Form language may not address the many nuances and circumstances in which a stopo and a waiver can arise. Such circumstances vary from case to case and depend on a lot of factors such as the sophistication of the party, the magnitude of the prejudice to the party, the knowledge and information available to the surety, and the timing of obtaining that knowledge, whether the claim is disputed and whether the claimant is represented by counsel, as well as a host of other factors. The reservation of rights should clearly and unambiguously describe the rights and defenses being reserved in the particular circumstance and should be timely conveyed. But as the case law reveals, the most important aspect of an effective reservation of rights, once it is asserted, is the, is the conduct of the surety after reserving the rights. Every effort should be made to avoid actions or statements that are inconsistent with the reservation of rights. Not only should the surety be aware of and be sensitive to this, but its outside counsel, consultants, and agents should also be aware as well. As we saw from some of those cases, uh, those parties can also, their statements and, act and actions can result in a waiver as well. In addition to affirmative actions and statements, silence and inaction can also undermine an effective reservation of rights. If the claimant communicates its intent to hold off filing suit based upon its understanding of communication with the surety, the surety should respond informing the claimant that it does so at its own risk. Okay, so that wraps up for today. I need to, um, need to let you know what's coming up. So before I open up the line for any questions, I wanted to let everyone know the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, June 11th at 12.30 Eastern Time. I will present on the topic of the Davis-Bacon Act. Uh, upcoming events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Launch will be May 16. The Chicago Surety Claims Launch will be May 17. The Atlanta Surety Claims Launch will be May 24th. And the PSCA, uh, the Philadelphia Golf Outing, will be June 4th. And uh, you don't want to miss that because they're giving away the uh, giveaway prize. is a nice Coleman folding chair. That's really nice. Then the uh, Chicago Surety Claims Golf Outing will be June 14th. So maybe we should just take off the month and go, you know, to these lunches and play golf, whatever. Uh, let me unmute the line.